Dagonade. Dagonade, as I like to call it. Dagoniad. 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 Although, you know what? When life gives you Dagon, you make, make Dagonade. Dagonade. And I'm going to make that joke a few times. HPPodcraft.com Do you guess that being 55 meant that your thighs and your butt were just going to be a little thicker than you liked? No matter how much you strode up and down the hills of beautiful San Francisco. You just had to settle for being tight-muscled, but no longer looking it so much. At least the aerobic high was the same as ever. Powering slopes and nice blue flame of oxygen in your lungs. She was moving through the upper hate now aiming to cut across steep Buena Vista Park, then steeply down to Divisadero. Her dear old friend Babs had told her to take a hike, that she would mind the store for the last three hours. A gift Babs offered frequently, and Dee too often accepted. She guessed she was having age issues. Testing and training her strength was a growing concern. Babs, five years farther along, was helping her through it. That was the opening paragraph, Michael Shea's Dagoniad, or as Chris keeps calling it, Dagonade. <laughs> oh, yeah! <laughs> it does sound delicious. Oh. Mm, that opening reading was provided by my lovely and talented wife, Heather Clinky, and you are listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and we're at HPPodcraft.com. Once again, we are joined by the very sultry, Pat Oswald. Mm. Hi, listeners. How you doing? <laughs> I'm here with all of your fabulous <laughs> old one, and uh, I've lost the riff. I'm sorry, guys. I, I tried, but the, tried. The, the lunch is taking its time getting here, and I'm having a bit of a protein drop. Here we go. Here we go. I had a quick question for you before mm-hmm. we jump into the story. You wrote a book a few years ago, Silver Screen Fiend, Learning About Life from an Addiction to Film. You've clearly seen more films than the average person. <laughs> I was mean, just, mean than the healthy person? Yes. Not judging, but asking. <laughs> based on that experience, do you have any favorite Lovecraft adaptations or Lovecraftian films that always come to mind? Uh, well, I mean, you know, the, the one that jumps immediately to mind, of course, is Reanimator, only because Stuart Gordon, he really got the extreme horror and absurdity and HP's weird, very weird sense of humor. Yeah. If you read the way that Herbert West Reanimator is written, it's almost done like a mockumentary <laughs> about a mad scientist. Mm-hmm. It has those elements to it that I think are really, really, they're funny. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. When, that, and so he kind of got that. And then there are movies that it's not that they are of the mythos, but they are very, very Lovecraftian. Mm-hmm. The one that leaps to mind is, of course, Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. It has an Necronomicon in it, but then it uses it as a starting point. Uh, John Carpenter's version of the thing is is a masterpiece. There's another John Carpenter film that's not great, but it has one great moment in it that reaches a Lovecraftian level, and that is Prince of Darkness mm-hmm. when they're looking yep. at the videotape yeah. from the future. And so scary. It, it, it is what a videotape of the devil would look like. It's so unnerving. It's in the middle of this thing. It's not a great film, but that one scene is like that is so terrifying yeah. I have that soundtrack for that movie in like a playlist and that oh, the really? audio from that came up on shuffle the oh, other yeah. day and it still got me it's scary is that on your oh. sex mix for when Could uh, be. you and the wife maybe All right. <laughs> when the cloacas come out yeah and also this also isn't a quote-unquote Lovecraftian movie but the flashback in the middle of Pet Cemetery, where the soldier is buried and comes back the way that it's shot is very very 
Lovecraftian. The, the, the soldier that comes back, and then later, of course, Zelda yeah. in the bed is With such her a weird oh, meningitis. And they, there's a little documentary I just saw about the making of that film that was really interesting. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, because Stephen King shot that around his hometown. He, he people were like, "How come you don't ever bring any?" Uh, no, film I don't. To, to he, Maine? Didn't, he didn't direct it. No, he didn't. But I'm saying that he brought yeah. the production to the, uh, the woman that directed it was really amazing and, and didn't get enough because the movie's uneven, but there are elements in it that are so terrifying. Oh, I agree. We're like, oh, let her do more horror because she has it in her to to really scare the crap out of you. Right, Mary Lambert. And Zelda was, of course, played by a man. That was a male actor, yeah. The stuff with Gage, was that the kid? Gage. Mm. Oh, God, God, it's so creepy. It's so so tragic and horrific, and it's just, oh, my God. I I love it fully formed. I mean, even the things that are bad about it, I love. You know, I saw it so many times. Yeah. And then Fred Wynn's performance is out of of this world. Yeah. (laughs) It's almost become its own archetype, even though it's just one character that is better yeah well the they, new they, england they, the guy that shows up and yeah they, they did a whole south park episode about right. him his character oh right and the if guy, you watch the, the guy, movie everything's his fault it's so his he, fault he caused well, everything well that's what the south park episode is about is about he is do, basically teasing the guy well you don't want to go up to that cemetery <laughs> yeah, Meg well, then, well, then why are you telling me about it? i'm mm. just telling you in case you ever have yeah but i i'm only just now hearing about it i never would have known about it if you hadn't told me like you're the guy letting everyone know about this place you idiot Uh, Anyway, Dagoniad. Dagoniad, let's get on to this story. Once again, featuring a monster's name. Dagoniad would be derived from Dagon, which Mm -hmm. is actually an ancient Mesopotamian deity. The Dagon reference here, I think, would be Dagon from Lovecraft's story, the same name. In that story, which we covered uh, quite a while ago, it was our third episode, actually, a guy is shipwrecked, comes across this giant black mire in the middle of the ocean, like a risen island, and then he sees a monster emerge and worship at this giant stone monolith. Then suddenly I saw it. With only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polyphemous-like, and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. (laughs) Certain... It's like so. seeing Godzilla at church. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, the fact oh, that it's praying that's yeah, the real Yeah, that's creep. what's terrifying. What's it praying So to? I don't know yeah. if mm. that creature will come up in the story, but that's who's making your Dagon aid. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Let's jump in. <laughs> Our story starts off with Dee. She's a 55-year-old woman who's starting to feel her age, a resident of San Francisco. She was introduced in the last story. Yeah. Yeah. She pops in kind of in the middle of the last story, and now we're following her again, James Joyce Dubliner style. Right. A character in one story is now the focus of the next, and we're getting a bigger portrait of the city and the people that live in it. Yeah. Kind of like The Wire. <laughs> yeah. This is The Wire of Lovecraft uh, <laughs> yeah. stories. So, wait, there's elements of the story that make me feel like maybe this is a prequel to the last story. Because when she comes to the table, literally, in the last story, she has all this knowledge. Whereas yeah, she's uh, the one with the book and everything. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe she's had this knowledge for a long, long time only because they've talked about how old and battered that book is. Mm-hmm. And other people in the city are aware of Lovecraft short stories and they're almost being handed out like guidebooks to the ones who know. You're the ones who know this isn't pulp fiction. This is actually a warning. Right. So maybe she just she's just been gathering the people that know. Mm. I don't know. You know what? That is an element I missed, and you could be right. Now I, I, I don't go know if I am or these. not. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if I'm not. It seems that this is because of this experience she has in this story. She then goes on to be an expert, which is where we meet her in the last story. Maybe hmm. um, she runs a bookstore with a friend Babs. 
who's mm-hmm. watching the store while she's out for a hike. And in the opening, it says she guessed she was having age issues. And I found that the theme of aging and coping with aging comes up again and again in the story, especially as they're introducing the characters. They're all introduced kind of through the filter of how they're dealing with the age that they are. Well, I'm guessing, you know, Michael Shea was a very, very physical person. He was very much into exercise and health. And sadly, he's passed. But that's got to be a very, very frightening thing that I think he was very, very in tune with that as you get older and you're like, I don't have the speed and strength that I used to. And I now have to maybe put my trust in the younger generation and then you start remembering how kind of dumb and not wise you were at that age oh, going, oh now I'm in this world surrounded by people that were as dumb as I was <laughs> I'm not yeah. as fast and strong all yeah. I have is wisdom that's a scary thing to contemplate yeah man so he he makes sure to put that in his a lot of his works it's, well it's a great way to start this because it not only handicaps the characters to begin with we know they're not at their Mm-hmm. best and then also as you say they have to reach out and rely on other people yeah, yeah. Is, you know. so Dee's out on her walk using a fancy walking stick with a brass knob not silver so no werewolf killing I guess it isn't a werewolf killing uh, thing uh, she calls it Rod clever this <laughs> evening she's planning on seeing her ex-lover Susie yeah she still loves Susie but tonight it says Dee had to talk some hard truth to that sweet but silly bitch <laughs> it seems that, that pin- feeling <laughs> How did you know that feeling? It seems that a pimp was just brutally murdered, a pimp Susie knows. Susie lives her life recklessly by selling pot around town, and Dee worries that she's going to get hurt. Susie, when she's introduced, she's afraid of aging as well, having just turned 50. It says she was so afraid of herself, so afraid of being old and alone, that she was throwing herself away with both hands. Ah, It was just great writing. Dee has some time to kill before meeting Susie, so she slips into the gin and beer (laughs) So Which good. is, it's, it's a good one. There you go. This is where she runs into this girl, Scat. Scat was mentioned at the end of the last story, and it's kind of an unfortunate nickname. I hope it's because she likes jazz music, <laughs> not for some other reason. <laughs> so Scat is young and seems a bit goth. She's got dark hair and heavy eye makeup. She looks scared, which is strange because this girl is not easily friend. Dee met Scat when she came into the bookstore and asked if they had any Clark Ashton Smith or any other mythos stories. And Dee says, mythos like Lovecraft? And Scat says, yeah, like Lovecraft, I'm a hooker who reads. So it's Well, that's that classic cliche, the hooker who's into Lovecraft. <laughs> I mean, how many times have you seen that well, that's, in movies? The that's hooker a, who's into Lovecraft. That's a, a story about Lovecraft that he went, when he went to go visit New Orleans, whether this is true or not, one mm. of his friends took him down there to a brothel where all of the prostitutes read the pulps and they knew Lovecraft's work. Whether what? or not... Whether or not that's a true story or not, but that is that is definitely wow. One of the, I have to I have to go back and look to remember who it was. But yes, it is actually a oh thing. Oh my wow. god! Hookers in a Lovecraft, and maybe Shay knew that or heard that story. That's amazing. Oh, so this was the first time though it had come up that these Lovecraft stories exist in this world. That Clark Ashton Smith exists in this world. Yes. So these authors were writing about these things that are actually happening, and I didn't know how I felt about that at first because. There seems to be something specific about Lovecraft where people will work him into his own, mm-hmm. you know, world yeah. that he created. And you don't find, you know, J.K. Rowling doesn't show up in, <laughs> in, in, in you know, in Harry Potter right. somewhere. You don't find well, this happening. you know what? It. I'm sure that she shows up in a lot of the fan fiction. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm sure she's in a lot of that stuff. You know, it's interesting just because I think at this point and where we're living in the 21st century, to not acknowledge that he was a guy who wrote this Pulp Fiction, but maybe he, because it goes into the bigger theme of he was a weirdo outcast mm. with no social antenna who was in tune with something and he coped with it by writing Pulp stories. He didn't have the internet. They're now dealing with it in their way. It's a real world version of 
passing the mythos on. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think that's why he shows up so much, I guess, instead of other authors. There's the myth of him as a character. Although it would be, now that I think about it, it would be interesting, though, if, especially in, in a city as woke as San Francisco, if these people are using his mythos as a way to guard against these entities, if one of them could acknowledge that, you know, the guy that's helping us do this is, was also a screaming racist. <laughs> Like, we do know that, right? Like, that kind of, especially since, you know, some of these are either they're lesbians or they're people of color. Mm -hmm. If they were to go, oh, why, why did the guy that... Why did, did it have to uh, be? Yeah. this asshole, you know. <laughs> that would be, but th that would be a really interesting story. Yeah, nobody's perfect, you know. Yeah. Nobody's nerfing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, God, where were we? Now we're in the present. Oh, we're right, scat. thank you, thank you. Oh, okay, so now in the present. <laughs> now in the present, Scat says she knew this pimp that was killed is a guy, Nolo. He hooked up with her best friend, and she is super upset about it. Dee invites her to come with her to go meet up with Susie, who may not know that this happened, because Susie also knew this guy. They meet Susie at a hotel where she lives, and she offered them a drink and or toke, but she knows Dee won't take her up on it because she's all straight-edged. I think at some point later, she references being sober for 30 years. And a lot of these characters are dealing with some kind of drug addiction or alcoholism or, or in recovery was the author exploring that as a because it was in his biography and it was just something that he knew or do you think that there's a connection between substance abuse and what's going on in the world of these stories i think it's both i mean it was definitely something that he knew and it's a thing that comes up in a lot of his writing is what happens he again he was a very very healthy intelligent guy that was addicted to drugs for a time okay. and, and it's that idea of drugs are a thing that use just like a with some of these Cthulian entities, it's not that you're using the drugs. You use them at first, and then they very quickly use you. Mm -hmm. The addiction uses you. The addiction is almost a sentient thing that needs a warm place to live, and mm -hmm. it needs you, and it needs you on drugs to live in. It's willing to alter your chemistry to make a safe place for itself. So those two things tie in very... And also, mm -hmm. if you're dealing with people living on the fringes, especially in San Francisco, it would be unrealistic for drugs not to be a part of it because right. it's just a big part of the culture there yeah and it's looked on as a healthy part of the culture and he's showing you the unhealthy aspects of yeah. it yeah yeah well uh they break the news to Susie that nolo is dead and she's shocked because only a few days ago she had gotten high with nolo's girlfriend in their jacuzzi mm -hmm. jacuzzi again that was so my next question is what do you think about shay's use of jacuzzis in these stories <laughs> you know what i don't it's weird i actually i should because uh, i i got to know him right before he died and i still email with his wife i'm gonna email her and ask about the jacuzzi <laughs> And then when you post this episode, I can go on Twitter going, here's the jacuzzi. Thing. Okay, there we go. Now, now that you, I, that's right, I the it. jacuzzis keep coming up. Yeah. The hell? The strong maybe, jacuzzi you know theme. Maybe he was just a child of the 70s, man. Yeah, man. Could be. I'm impressed by it. Yeah. I mean, I am. That was like a, a real hallmark of wealth. In East oh, Moline, Illinois, growing up, if oh, somebody yeah. had a jacuzzi in their garage or something. Oh, whoa. Yeah. yeah. I had a guy and he had one of those signs that said, I don't, I don't soak in your toilet, don't pee in my... <laughs> Jacuzzi. <laughs> oh, I so thought, do. I remember reading that and going, that is cool. That's a cool guy, man. Yeah. Classy. So D, <laughs> D goes off on Susie for affiliating with these pimps, and then she digs in a scat for hooking, and scat says, hey, I only do hand jobs. Now scat. <laughs> Minimize. Minimize. Yeah. So now scat had heard uh, that something weird happened in the jacuzzi, and Susie says, yeah, me and my girlfriend, we heard something really strange, like an auditory hallucination. We were toking in the tub, and we started to hear the sound coming from the sea. I mean, we were like two miles from the water, but we knew it was from the sea. It was like whispering. Thousands of people whispering, but whispering from like under the sea. 
I swear to God, it was so strange sounding. And it was strange because that almost never happens. Two people having the same hallucination like that. When the girlfriend told Nolo about the sound, he said, oh yeah, I heard that myself a few days before. She was the one who found his body just that night before on their deck, and she said that Nolo had been half eaten. A bit disturbed. Susie says she has to leave, and she gives them some sober chocolate chip cookies before they leave. Otherwise known as chocolate chip cookies. Dee and Scat are walking around pondering what the rules might be for this thing. Do you have to have this hallucination to be in danger? Do you have to be stoned? Is it only going after people on cannabis? Scat seems to think that the hallucination itself somehow calls the killer. Just then a guy calls to Scat, and he comes over, and this is Mishu. Uh, he's one of Scat's clients, and he doesn't want to talk. He just goes, I have to tell you something. Dagon, first, you have to hear him. If you hear him, then you can see him. And if you can see him, then he can take you. But I can't talk about it. I dare not. Be careful. And then he just runs off. And later, Dee ponders that sequence, hearing, then seeing, then being taken, as if it's some entity and not just a psycho or an animal. So she's already coming around to this being otherworldly. The guy leaves, and Scat says that she wants to go home and do some reading before discussing this any further. She does that reading. She calls Dee. She says, let me meet up with you at your house. So they meet up. They have some sandwiches. Then they start talking Dagon what the boy might have meant by that name. Scat has some insight on this creature. He's like a sea monster god. He's one of the great old ones. But his sea, his ocean, fills not only this space, but other spaces, and not only our time, but other times. And he hungers for all living things to add them to his dominion. She fails to mention which book she got this from, which I'm very curious. Is, yeah. is this is a tome or is this another fiction work? Is Lovecraft's work a tome? Because you're able to get mythos knowledge from these books because it's true or it's based in the reality of it. Or is maybe Michael Shea saying that Lovecraft is almost like a pulp fiction or a monster hunter version of Kilgore Trout? in uh, Kurt Vonnegut's things where (laughs) Kilgore Trout is writing these really deep stories that actually have solutions for mankind, but they're being published in these skin rags where no one's really reading them. So was H.P. Lovecraft giving us warnings on how to battle the old gods, but they're like, "Eh, it's these, again, it's he's that monster man. Yeah. (laughs) You know. Like in, uh, we, in Men in Black, they're getting all their information from yeah, the, the yes, tabloids. Exactly. Yeah. That's where all the yeah, true yeah. stuff is. Yeah, yeah. As they sit there talking, Dee hears something. It was like the whisper of a million, million tongues, but an oddly silken cerceration. A whisper lubricated by some medium, by water. That simmering stratum was not the sky, but the sea that girdled them upon their hillside perch. It was a tide of sinuous sound, of urgent utterance, of woe. That's beautiful writing. Mm -hmm. The the notion that this otherworldly force has a sadness to it, we find elsewhere in this story. And I'm so glad, uh, Patton, that you kind of explained the last story to me because now it makes a lot more sense, this kind of feeling. It's the danger. That's They're about to be sucked into that. And now it can hear them and it knows where they are. And so what they do then is they're like, oh, God, we heard it. He's hurt us. What do we do? Is there anywhere to run? How do you outrun basically the ocean? And then there's a great scene where they go and they confront another drug dealer, Ty, who has also heard it. And they're saying, look, you're in danger. You got, Aren't you scared? Because they're trying to get out of the city. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you run from these things immediately? And he says, man, he said, rolling his eyes as if searching for words to tell wonders. I wish I could describe to you the things I've been hearing. At night, every night, I can hear things like pouring into the streets, like leaking in from under the streets, coming in from the ocean. They sound like 
cold smoke when they move, moaning and jabbering. You know, I never knew what it means before. The universe, the spaces in it, and the voices, the millions of voices. Scat says, but but don't you, aren't like she's going, aren't you scared? He goes, hey, this is huge, ladies. This is the universe showing itself. If it's there, I want to be aware. Aren't you tired of this little old dirt box world anyway? Aren't you jazzed to meet a miracle? That's the temptation. Yeah. Of even if it's horrifying, it's so beyond our world. And you're, you've been chosen to be in touch with it. Oh, even yeah. if you're being chosen to be consumed. Look at the point of view of the lives he's looking at this from. These are the cast off, the ignored, the people on the fringes. And we're the elite suddenly. Yeah. This thing is seeking us out. We're special. That's got, yeah, we're special. And there's a, there's a real seductive quality to that, which is horrifying. But that's one of the reasons that these yeah. people are being consumed the way they are. If it feels good there's that strong impulse to surrender to it. I mean, even as a lo- as a reasonable person, I could see that, well, if it feels good, then it's probably good. Like if I yeah. feel like I'm, op- it's opening my mind to these beautiful vistas, these things I never, even though I'm a little scared, I'm also like, this is amazing that I could see myself being pulled into that. Yeah, right. They leave Ty and head off to see Susie, but they find out that she's gone to the hospital to visit her jacuzzi buddy, Serena. Yes, yeah, Serena was uh, Nolo's girlfriend who discovered his body. We have this little cutaway scene where Susie approaches Serena's hospital room, which is dark with some dank smell coming out of it. Oh, yeah. And she thinks, who is this tall figure standing by Serena's bed? And that's all we get. Then we cut away again. It's very cinematic. So Dee and Scat arrive at the hospital and they notice that no one's around, which I totally love that idea that a, a busy place, for some reason, people just subconsciously know to go away. Like if they can yeah. go somewhere else, mm-hmm. they do. They go to the fourth floor, find Serena's room. Dee senses something is up and she tells Scat to hang back and then she looks into the room. She yells for Scat to go find someone, hurry, and Dee steps inside. The misty pallor of streetlight bled through a curtain beyond the bed and laid a silver sheen upon a tangled shape. No. Two entangled shapes. Legs, arms, torsos, heads, two heads. One, a black, sticky skull with empty sockets and a piano key grin of teeth. And the other head, Susie's. Her face unscarred except for the rictus of agony. Half-eaten indeed trenched to the bone in a spiral pattern. Poor Serena was a stripped skull on a bony stick, her full bosom unscathed, but her midriff gone, just a bloody banjo of pelvis bone there, while her thigh bones were still half-trousered in flesh. Of Susie, the unimaginable carnivore had denuded legs and lower back, her trestled ribs, her cervical spine, And when at last she tore her eyes away and ran, her mind adhered to the horror that she fled. A horror she was fleeing to? Good bone work there. Yeah. He really is the bone work. (laughs) There's a lot of gore in these stories. The stuff we cover, it's weird fiction, and it's typically written, you know, early 1900s or before then. So there's lots of reasons why there's not a lot of gore. Right. But... I just wondered what you thought about use of gore in these stories versus the typically understated style that Lovecraft preferred. Well, if you notice, a lot of Lovecraft stories are told from the point of view of aesthetes or Mm -hmm. uh, professorial types Mm. who have long learned how to couch 
what they're saying and writing in palatable terms. These are street people, lower level denizens mm. of society, and they've looked upon gore and sex and violence in a much less poetic way, even though he can't stop himself from saying the trellised meat, the, you know, <laughs> but they look upon the gore, they look upon life, yeah. the blood, and Lovecraft was very much about a turning away from life and being against life, and it was almost like his Cthulhu stories were his defense for the way that he lived, like, well, but there's horrible cosmic horrors out there, you should live this weird aesthetic life away from people, otherwise you'll be consumed. They want to live a life of having parties, getting drunk, you know, hooking up, and it just makes it far more contemporary. Yeah. These are people on the ground. So, yeah, I just, there's, for me, that when you're talking about Lovecraft staying away from this stuff, I have this own, it's not my theory, but it's a theory that I just truly believe that Lovecraft was gay and he was repressed homosexual and mm. that there's a lot of um, fear of what's inside of you, what you are. That seems to be kind of attributed to racism, but I, I really feel like he was repressed with his sexuality. I mean, he spent a lot of time with Barlow, who was, you know, who, gay, who was openly gay. Oh. And that there is something about fear of what is in, inside of you, like right. especially with uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth where it's like, I'm, a, I'm secretly a deep one. And a lot of people attribute that to race, you know, like I might be black. Right. But I don't, I personally think that that's not what he was afraid of. I think he was afraid of something else. Yeah, I, and I gotta say there there was a, and I saved it, I found that online, there was, a, there was a thing from one of his notebooks, these sketches he made of the great old ones, the ultimate horror, and they all look like vaginas. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying that be, no, they yeah. look like they're drawings of vaginas, and in his mind, this is the ultimate horror in the universe. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think there was a lot. And him, and um, especially if you read um, M.R. James's short stories, it's always a hairy, toothy, gaping mouth that comes oh and bites you. Yeah, and like that's that true. that's like yeah. the ongoing horror in all of his stories. Like you're just you're you're scared of women. It yeah. was originally and called the Pussy Hound. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, off that first I mean, I, there's there's certainly plenty of evidence there. And, and also in his time, think of the time that he grew up in being gay was thought of as some kind of disease or. Oh, or, yeah. It, it was thought of as the same. If you were a racist, black was as genetically inferior in the same way as someone who's gay. They're like damaged or not as superior as a straight white male. So it was that kind of paranoia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could totally see that. Yeah. Uh, Especially thinking of that way he's viewed the world. Not, it's a pet theory. I'm working on my paper right now. <laughs> yeah. So Dee and Scat spent the night with the cops who suspected them of the murders, but they obviously figure out that they didn't do it. Right. And they are let go after 14 long hours with yeah. the police. Which he kind of skips over, which gives you the sensation of, again, these people that are used to being arrested, being interrogated, and they just block that part out. Just get through it and get back to your life. Oh, and yeah. get what pleasures you can. Because the way he papers over it lets you know that the characters feel that way. Yeah. yeah. Like if I were arrested and interrogated for it, that's all I would talk about for years. <laughs> oh, my God. You, forever. I was arrested. And I and these guys are like, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they round you up and they talk to you. Just ignore them and they let you go. <laughs> You know, like that's that's how they're living. Can you believe they don't have liquid soap in there? <laughs> when they're finally released, Susie wants to split, but Dee thinks they should find out more about what's going on. She says, what I saw in the room, there are monsters. There are monster gods. Scat says, the great old ones. And Scat, of course, would say that because she reads a ton of Lovecraft. I was thinking, is there some other literary cult in the city that would see things well, totally different? Like, guys, this is Twilight. I know this is Twilight. <laughs> you know. Um... Guys, this is this is the work of the Babysitters Club. Yeah. I'm telling you, I'm, this is exactly how they do. 
This is the Babysitters Club. Oh my! You know who ate? You know who ate her body? Amelia Bedelia. Um, I think that she says when she says the great old ones. I don't think that she knows it's, a, it's that she reads these things and that's her closest point of reference. Sure. Yeah. And she goes, yeah, it's the great old ones because yeah. that's all she knows. Agreed. Know? So they decide to talk to Ty and Mishu before night falls, and then they're going to get out of town. They keep procrastinating on this getting yeah. out of town business. They go to Ty's, but he's not there. So they wait at Scat's place and they fall asleep, waking up just before the sunset. It was just like when I saw Cuckoo's Nest the first time. I'm going, you fell asleep? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the most important thing in the world is for you to escape. Uh. They look for Ty again and they do find his door open. When they come in, there's a note on the table by the bed and it's from his sister, Shailene. She calls him baby brother anyway. I don't know if it's his real sister. It starts with, I'm telling you one last time and then I'm getting my black ass out of the city. It's clearly going to be a letter of warning. She says that all these strange things that are happening are real. She talks of Dagon's great drowning, how Ty needs to get out of town. She says it's close and it's going to get him. Dagon is collecting souls to raise his standing with the great old ones. She's in St. Louis now, as far away from the ocean as she can get, and she ends with this note. And don't forget either, keep in mind, Tyrone, that the tearing out of your soul from your meat is a hard, long, screaming passage to eternity. Oh, Oh, man. Now, again, this is another yeah. character that seems to have a lot of knowledge about... I mean, she's laying down some stuff. Who's this uh, sister? I almost thought saw that as a bit of humor of like, yeah, of course, the frenzy street people are reading Lovecraft. It's almost like there was that great Onion story in My Dumb Century about at the height of the Great Depression, Americans long to escape into the wonderful world of H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> like... Oh, when the mad Arab is eaten in full view of the marbles, I wish I could live in these, in, in, in the non-Euclidean dream spires of of Riley, like because 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 their lives are so miserable during the Great Depression. Like if I could just escape oh, the wonderful would, world of Lovecraft, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. My other favorite thing from that book was. Uh, Peter Parker. It was like Peter Parker gets bit by dies of leukemia. <laughs> leukemia. Gets, yeah, yeah, dies of leukemia. They search a bit more for Ty, and they follow his trail down to Mission Rock, where he likes to smoke by the water. But he's not there, so they have a couple of beers. Cut to me screaming, just leave town! <laughs> yeah. They do finally decide to go. As they leave, they see Ty's car, and they go over to look and see if he's in it. They hear something in the weeds and go to check it out, and they find Ty's mostly eaten body in the bushes. A sticky red skeleton of hand and arm reached toward them as if it still strained for the refuge of that black impala up on the pavement. <laughs> <laughs> Great bone work. Oh. <laughs> they run to their car, and they drive. So finally, they're getting out of town. Yeah! Yes. But before they get out of town, they see Mishu just walking around, and he darts into an alley. And so they want to talk to him because they're hoping that he's going to be able to tell them more about what the hell's going on. So they stop the car. They go down the alley to catch him, but he's not there. They can't find him. Then they hear the sound from behind them on the main street. Something erupts out of the drain grate in the street. A sinuous mass sort of flows out of it and blocks their way back to the car. A tall, wide shape of a man in a long, dripping overcoat. Drenched hair hid the cavernous eyes and the coat coat was a glittery, rubbery fabric, was seaweed, and filling its long sleeves were something not quite like arms, which extended webbed claws like great dripping baskets of drowned bones. It advanced on them fluidly, and the fleshy, wet wings of its overcoat opened and displayed a long, lean, plated midriff like a reptile's, down which were ranked like teats a double row of sharp toothed reptile mouths. Oh, what a great description. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I can't quantify this in the the mythos that I know. This is some well, other new I, I, entity. I got to say I think this is Michael Shea going, it's time for me to add to the mythos. Yeah. I think this is the 
it's like the DNA of the old ones taking on and evolving a new shape in order to walk the streets and get more prey. Yeah. This thing is ever shifting. There's no specific way that this thing looks or acts. Mm. They eventually end up calling it the Taker. Ooh, that's uh, right, they do. Yeah. Can I read the second description of him? Because this, this is this is that woe and sadness we talked about mm. um, now in action. Behind the wet weed of his drowned hair, the dead black buttons of a shark's eyes glinted. Yet, in the wrinkled orbits of those eyes, in its barnacled brows of reptilian scale, the women saw an ancient grief, unutterable, and a fury at their unfettered lives, and a hunger for their world, their time, their flesh. The black crater of its maw, sunk in its chelicerate jaws, echoed this hunger, as did the toothed mouths down its midriff, all making some mute, carnivorous utterance he raised his dripping talons and beckoned which okay here's there's two great things going on in that paragraph toothy mouths all up and down its midriff these hungry eyes hating them for being warm and alive unfettered lives the thing is a slave this thing is a slave and a servant to the old ones but he or it thinks the way to get these things is to beckon and go come with me like in this thing's mind we are offering you something amazing even though its shape is so horrifying and repulsive Mm -hmm. the act of beckoning is so horrible it shows you what a warped mind and what a warped view this thing has Mm -hmm. of what it is and what its purpose is and what these two women's purpose is and should be that's what's so horrifying come they're like what the fuck (laughs) you would come to you you idiot (laughs) They uh, swipe left or right. What do you do when you don't like something? They turn and they sprint away. From, I don't know. I've never used that thing. They turn and they sprint away from it. And it's a good thing that Dee has been keeping it tight, doing all that cardio, because it is needed now as they run away from this. That's right. As the thing chases them, it doesn't seem to tire. It's relentless. Dee feels something almost touching her, and she swings around with her cane and smashes it. And it has some substance, but the cane tears right through it. It seems like... It requires some time to recover from it. So it's sort of like maybe like the Sandman consistency. Not, right. Not Neil Gaiman Spider-Man, Sandman, Sandman. Spider-Man Sandman. She's able to knock pieces off of it, but then it recoalesces mm-hmm. and takes shape And again. from an encounter there where it touches her, she also gets the sense, oh, if it touches you, it freezes you. Yes. Yes. It's got that power. And also, you know, the frozen food aisles of a supermarket. Again, very, very Stephen King touch. Michael Shea loves mundane locations. There's stuff that takes place on, in his other stories, uh, city buses. He loves that, you know, this is right out of the mist. Yeah. Fighting off these otherworldly creatures, but with bug spray, like that whole thing of very familiar locations with horrible things in them. Yeah, I was smiling so widely because they saw the creature coming down an alley. Okay, very Nightmare on Elm Street. It's creepy. And then they run, they run. Supermarket. And then I was like, yes, I want to see this happen. And super again, it also shows the confidence of a writer and ultimately a filmmaker is to have your horror be well lit. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I see a monster, be it CGI or whatever, but they do it at night in the rain. It means, yeah, because you know your special effects suck. Yeah, yeah. And that's why you're doing this. <laughs> that's why that movie, The Host, is so amazing. Oh, that, yeah, you know, I that love take that movie. Broad daylight, yeah. not yeah. a cloud in the sky. That's a filmmaker going, no, I'll scare the crap out of you. I don't got to hide anything. Yeah. <laughs> There's also yeah. this weird thing because they run into the supermarket, the thing's chasing them. There are people yeah. around and in the supermarket, but because they haven't heard yeah. the thing first, they can't 
see it. It's just an invisible thing to them, you know? So they don't know what these crazy women are running from. Yeah. Scat needs a weapon. D's got the cane, but Scat's like, I need a weapon. And D goes, hardware. So they're going to run to that section, which is yeah. a great cinematic Evil Dead-like kind of yeah, yeah. moment. The monster comes at them down the aisle, down that frozen food aisle, and that's what Patton read. I can see the products on either side oh, yeah, of this monster. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, there yeah. it is. It's something very familiar to the yeah. reader. Yeah. Everybody has to shop. Ryan and Scat is almost able to get a hold of a weapon. The thing manages to touch her, to grab her, and it says the girl's legs crumpled and she hung slack-mouthed from its bony grip. So it's got her and one of its hands and then it's coming for D. It's like dragging her along. And D wonders if anybody saw this, what would they see? Would they just see her being pulled by an invisible force or would would they just not see it at all? She runs to the back of the store. Long story short, she gets some cleavers. She attacks the thing. She chops it in the face. It's a very gory action scene. And it releases Scat because it's hurt. She wakes up and Scat and D, well, okay. It was confusing what happened here, but basically she took the cane and she chopped the thing in half, right? Yeah. And the top half falls down. There's the legs kicking around mm-hmm. on their own and they get them into the freezer. And then <laughs> D and Scat take turns beating the legs to make sure they can't get over and reform with the other half while the other half freezes. freezes. Yeah. yeah. That was a good little touch too. There's always, I remember in, in Terminator 2 when they break into all those pieces and then it starts to melt and reform. Remember they yeah. put the lid and you're like, scoop up a big piece of it and take it with you. Yeah. So that, it, so that it's like missing a leg or something. Like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, so the fact that they went, well, hang on, let's mess with its legs. <laughs> yeah. That's great. And just the idea of them taking turns on yeah. these disembodied bunk, bunk, bunk. legs beating yeah. on them is so funny. Well, it's good yeah. that they take turns because one can rest for a few minutes while the other one does the beating. You know, I mean, they really thought it through. They did. Scan says that it, it isn't Dagon, but D is stoked because, you know, we kicked its ass. Scan says that they need to defy Dagon. That's their next step. That's the only thing they can do. How she comes to this conclusion, I don't Look, know. Maybe beating she... Dagon's avatar, that is a thing that would fill me with confidence if I was able to not only... <laughs> Think of the experience points. Not only did they... Did, not only did... <laughs> You don't Not have... only did they physically beat it, but they did that thing that most people can't do is, you know, when you gaze upon it, you lose your mind. Yeah. And they didn't. They kept That's their wits true. about them. Yes. So there's two huge victories that just happened there. Absolutely. Oh, I can't let it pass, Chad. There is no experience points in Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Oh, there isn't? No, you just mark a skill and then you roll to see if it improves. Isn't one of your skills your sanity? Like you gotta, how far can you go without your sanity cracking? Yes. That's like, it's your hit points, but you have sanity. So yeah, you roll and and the the more you play, the more you play your character, the the more sanity sanity you have, the easier it is. But hang on, but having low sanity, is that, can that be an advantage in the game? You can gives you Cthulhu Mythos. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so then good. you know stuff. Oh, but, but nice. you're more likely to go nuts because exactly, you know that yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's it's not it never ends well. Oh, it all balances out. <laughs> you know, it balances out. <laughs> So their plan is to take these legs to the beach, and they have a hard time getting it into the back of the car. <laughs> now, do they just take the legs? This I was confused. Do they just take the legs, or do they wait till the thing freezes and they take them both but keep them separate? They it, don't just leave the torso in the supermarket, it, do they? It doesn't say that I they want do. them to. No, they just take the legs. I think they just take the legs. Yeah. So there's some poor stock boy who's going to go back there to get the <laughs> Carl Budig, and he's going to have it's like in, it's invisible. <laughs> It's oh, it would be invisible to him. Oh, no, huh? yeah, it, they, he can't see it. Because they talk about other people in the store, they just think it's two crazy oh, ladies yeah. Yeah, whipping think, around. They think they're doing some kind of mime act or something. Right, like, right. So exactly. for who knows how long there's going to be a frozen torso mm. back yeah. in the supermarket. So they put it in the back seat, and then Scat is just clubbing it back there while <laughs> D is driving. <laughs> and they're not sure exactly what they should do, but they think that this is the only way to really get this great old one off their back. So they go down to the beach, then they drag the taker over to the shore. They let it go, and it... The scene is almost like a baby turtle when it makes its way to the water, you know? Yep. Because these legs are walking away on their own, kicking through the weeds, and yeah. then they wade into the water. 
as if they know what to do. Th- that is such a great, almost like mafia version of like, here's your boy. Yeah. Like, here's your boy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, they're like dumping like, his body back on their is, doorstep. This is what we did to him. Yeah. Yeah. This so is this go. is the bulletproof vest with the fish in it. Yeah. 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 Hey, Cthulhu <laughs> sleeps with the... Actually, he already did that. Never mind. That's actually not, that's actually not a threat. Uh, oh, man. It's not. A giant fish hand comes onto the water and takes the taker into the sea. Yeah, something like that. It says, from the swollen water, the oily sheen of black knuckles as big and barnacled as boat hulls bulged from the skin of the bay. Ugh. And huge tentacular digits slid into a snake knot round the taker's legs. That's some good, some good, good stuff. There, yeah. Snake knot round the taker's legs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Oh. It's drawn back to the primordial ooze. So D and Scat leave, driving away to look out up on Twin Peaks. Out of their long, staring silence, Dee said, What keeps him from just coming ashore and taking it all? He's locked out with the other great old ones, but... But what? But I've been hearing things. Before all this, I mean, I've been hearing about Shagas. I've been hearing about Cthulhu himself. What are you telling me? That somehow, this is a focus. That the great old ones are at the gates, are picking the locks. Another silence passed as they looked some more upon the dazzlement and darkness. Well, I'll tell you one thing, girl, said Dee. Be all that as it may, to hell with running. I'm not running anywhere. This is my city. So the great old ones really just want San Francisco. Yeah. 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 Well, they see that beautiful glittering stained glass window, but then you have that great last line from D going, this is my city. Yeah. And again, that's that Justice League moment of like, okay, we're going to fight this. The least likely, least powerful people have to fight off cosmic horror. But I got to say that these stories end hopeful. Yeah, they do. As opposed to most Lovecraft stories, which just end terribly. Everything is bad and it's just going to get worse. Whereas these people are like, you know what? We've got a chance. We're going to do this. Again, think of Lovecraft and think of Michael Shea. Michael Shea very much embraced life. Married, kids, loved his family. Very, very physical. Overcame a lot of negativity and I think overcame a lot of that by embracing saying yes to life, but still remembering that horror and trying to find ways out of it. I mean, they're very Pyrrhic victories, but they are victories. Mm -hmm. Cthulhu wins if you lose hope. Yeah. And if you keep hope, that's a knife in its gut. Well, I mean, for me, hope is the only thing that in the nihilistic world, that is what you have to have. If you don't have any hope, you have nothing. (laughs) Yeah, that's why I always say it was funny because when we did Space Time for Springers, I was like, you know, I just get through life because I believe in my own fictions. (laughs) And a lot of people wrote in and they were like, that's so sad. I was not for me. It's not sad. I love it. I I love my fictions. It's like we always say, every ending is bad. It's where you stop the story, you know? Yeah, yeah, Vonnegut did a whole thing about that. You can, you know, it's just where do you stop your story? Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. And uh, Penn, we're going to have to end On this that? right now. No. Thank you so much story. for joining us again. Uh, thanks it's for amazing. Having, again, guys, thanks for having me back. I, really, thank you. You're a treasure. <laughs> All right. God bless you. <laughs> That's enough of that. All right, All right cool. And I got a wee. Let me so pee. Yeah, oh, you, you pee? pee? No, no, no. Snake not round the tanker's leg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> HPPodcraft.com.